You're listening to In the Thick of It, a podcast from the HCM Society, where we interview experts in the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy field to broaden the awareness of new HCM studies and advancements. In this episode, Dr. Eli Friedman is talking with Dr. Ahmad Masri of Oregon Health Sciences University Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Center. Dr. Friedman and Dr. Masri are good friends and former coworkers, and today they're talking about finding treatments for patients with non-obstructive hypotrophic cardiomyopathy, specifically focusing on drugs on clinical trial in cardiomyotrope ninorefaxstat. Let's get in the thick of it. Here's Dr. Ahmad Masri. Thank you, Eli, for the invite and for the HCM Society as well. Absolutely. So um, I, I think let, let's kind of start generally, Ahmad, and we'll work our way maybe more narrow from there. But interested in your experience as someone who takes care of a high volume of these patients, um, how do you typically find those who have non-obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? What are some of the challenges you encounter and, and generally how do they do? Uh, great question. We have multiple routes how patients can come. Either they arrive with an established diagnosis or they, uh, patients come after an echo has shown some left ventricular hypertrophy. And the question always is, is this appropriate or inappropriate left ventricular hypertrophy? Is there an explanation for it or not? And, you know, where do you draw the line? Because, you know, as you know, left ventricular hypertrophy is fairly common. And, you know, hypertension is also common, but it's, you know, commonly blamed for left ventricular hypertrophy when it's not always the cause and frequently is not the cause. And so, um, you know, we do a thorough evaluation and, you know, we frequently arrive to a conclusion either yes that patient likely has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy non-obstructive or that patient does not and there's enough explanation in their history and in their comorbidities to exclude that uh, possibility and you know what we find one of the challenges we find is that these patients typically struggle for a long period of time with symptoms with exercise intolerance uh, without being you know acknowledged in a way that they actually have the disease and, you know, once, once they are told that, yes, you know, your complaints are not out of proportion to what you have, I think this, this on itself introduces a relief to them. And then, you know, we start talking about the journey where we uh, try our best to help patients with the tools that we have right now, but it's fairly limited. Um, you know, historically, we've we focused a lot on obstructive HCM. We have had a lot of treatment options for obstructive HCM. But on the flip side, in non-obstructive HCM, we really don't have a lot of uh, therapies available in our toolkit. So it, there's a lot to, to digest in there, and I think those are all really wonderful points. So we, why don't we deal with some of the granular stuff just in terms of the workup? Uh, we, we know there's some mimickers there. So how do you, what tools do you use to ensure that the diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is accurate? And what are some of the things you're, you're crossing off along the line as you get to that diagnosis? Yeah, great question. You know, uh, it's always on our mind. Um, you know, you, uh, your favorite group, uh, athletes, we always uh, have this question, uh, is this appropriate or, or, or not hypertrophy and, you know, physiologic remodeling for an athlete versus is this disease? And so, you know, aside from clinical history, which I think is extremely important, including family history, uh, physical exam, you know, we then jump into the EKG and echocardiography. And, you know, in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, there are patterns of hypertrophy. It's really not just a number saying that, well, this left ventricular, you know, uh, thickness or the, the uh, maximum wall thickness is X. I think more or less also the distribution of the hypertrophy, the pattern of it is really important. We perform MRIs on almost everyone because with an MRI, what it allows us to do exactly specify where the hypertrophy is, the amount of thickness. But on top of that, the distribution 
the um, the pattern of, of 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 thickness, how it goes down the left ventricle itself, and more importantly, ruling out some of the mimickers. And you know, we do a lot of different sequences to rule out Fabry disease, for example. You know, sphingolipids deposition. It's it's it should be ruled out in almost every non-obstructive HCM patient. Uh, in the older side, we think about amyloidosis. Very, very important to rule out amyloid. Completely different approach and therapeutics nowadays. Um, you know, we think about you know other conditions that can cause that, including uh, how are their kidneys doing? Could this really be hypertensive cardiomyopathy and heart disease? And then you know, genetic evaluation. Sometimes uh, people think that gene testing is only meant to uh, uh, aid in cascade screening and family screening. But the reality is, no, it actually is an extremely helpful tool to keep you on track, not to miss these one in 10,000, one in 40,000 rare forms of uh, diseases that can resemble HCM as well. That, that, that's really great and, and all really good points and appreciate your feedback there. So uh, let's say we, you know, you've ruled out all those mimickers. Now you're, you're confident and comfortable that the person in front of you has hypertrophic, non-obstructive cardiomyopathy. Um, let's take someone who may be symptomatic, because I, I think we all kind of know what to do with those who aren't symptomatic. We watch them, we follow them. We can get into that if you'd like. But let's say the person's short of breath. They've got some decreased exercise tolerance, maybe even having chest pain once in a while. How are you managing those folks in your clinic? How are you talking with them and, and how are you counseling them? Um, an important point to remember is that patients can have a lot of symptoms in the absence of signs of heart failure. And I think that acts as a false reassurance for a lot of physicians, which where should, it shouldn't actually, because patients are limited. They don't have to swell up to, for us to you know, take them seriously. And so um, you know, from exercise testing evaluation, sometimes we even do cardiopulmonary exercise testing and to, to, to see, you know, risk stratify them and where they fall on the, you know, risk spectrum. You know, uh, again, unfortunately, we really don't have a lot of tools uh, at our disposal. So what we end up doing is we follow the traditional route of uh, trying a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker if possible. If someone has more angina from microvascular dysfunction or increased left ventricular uh, uh, pressure over shortness of breath, we almost always go with verapamil first because verapamil has really nice anti-anginal uh, uh, properties there. Uh, but we also do metoprolol in, in, uh, or beta blockers in some of these patients. Um, you know, we selectively use ranolazine uh, as a second line anti-angina therapy in some of these patients as well. Uh, we have to keep in mind, you know, we're searching for AFib all the time in non-obstructive HCM because there is also an atrial myopathy. So the need for anticoagulation to prevent strokes, irrespective of CHADVASC score itself, we also think about uh, a sudden death independent of symptoms, independent of presentation. Every patient needs an evaluation for their risk of sudden cardiac death and the need for defibrillator. And then finally, we think about uh, 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 what's available from, a, from an experimental therapy approach. Of course, when we think about experimental therapies or uh, 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 you know, drugs under investigation, uh, we think about them as, you know, options uh, that we don't know that they work for a fact at this point in time, but we have some clues that we're heading into the right direction. One last point about non-obstructive HCM, you know, the bailout way for these patients is transplant. And it's not a benign outcome, correct? Sometimes, you know, people can, you know, paint it as a benign outcome, but it is an option. So if someone progresses in their disease and their ejection fraction uh, falls below 50, or even when it's 50%, but they're unable to perform and they're you know, cardiac output is low, their peak VO2 is low, transplant is an option in such patients uh, if they fit that criteria for transplant. Yeah. 
Those are all amazing and excellent points, and I'm sure clinically useful for a lot of people. Um, th there's two points that you made that I really want to amplify. Um, one, as you said, we, we can't talk without talking about exercise. So are you using your CPET data or your stress echo data or any kind of objective functional uh, measure data to prescribe exercise to these patients? Absolutely. It's very important. One of the best measures that you can come up with from cardiopulmonary exercise testing that arguably you can't from other forms of exercise testing is uh, how much effort has the patient essentially exerted? Uh, so respiratory exchange ratio, for example. And the other part has to do with, have they had an increase in their O2 pulse and their ability of their part to augment with exercise? Those variables are really important, aside from the peak VO2 on its own and the you know, other things like VEVCO2 and slope and whatnot, these variables are really important to us because we actually try not to, um, you know, start with a therapy or with recommendation for a trial if someone essentially has a, a poor effort slash deconditioned slash is unable to achieve a reasonable uh, target. And then we also look at uh, chronotropic incompetence. A lot of these patients come to us on massive doses of beta blockers and calcium channel blockers. Sometimes the solution is actually to come down on these to provide more exercise tolerance. And, you know, this is this has clearly been shown uh, before. Uh, uh, Sarah Sabiri led the trial that showed that, you know, you can even increase and improve your peak VO2 through uh, uh, an exercise program. So that's part of our uh, assessment as well as part of our treatment paradigm. Yeah, and, and, and it's associated with better outcomes at the end of the day. And, and we now have trials like LiveHCM, which tells us that these patients can exercise vigorously, competitively, and, and at elite levels and, and still be free from events. So I think it's important. And we've seen a real paradigm shift in this regard. And it, it's great to see as a stakeholder in exercise. Um, you, you mentioned ICDs in this population, which I also think bears some, from, for some further discussion. How are you choosing ICDs for your patients who have non-obstructive HCM and, and especially the guidelines really highlighting shared decision-making? What kind of discussions are you having with them? Yeah, we, we, we do, we do embrace shared decision-making in the sense that there is tremendous uncertainty in this space. You know, someone who had a prior event, very straightforward, correct, but the majority have not. And the, the reality is that these remain rare events within the overall population. So your ability to predict them is still limited. And so we do follow a combination of both the American and the European guidelines. We do not use just a single factor. We, you know, at, here at OHSU, we do not use the calculator as a way of saying yes or no. I think you need to look at the patient. You need to think about all the traditional risk factors we, that are part of the guidelines. And we also look at uh, their and social and demographic situation. You know, some patients can be at the border of they're eligible for an ICD or not. But for example, you know, they live by myself, by themselves. They live a, they lead a life that is very, you know, very different from others. And so sometimes, you know, these scenarios play a role. And so uh, we embrace the uncertainty. There are very few scenarios where we tell the patient, you need a defibrillator and you cannot think that, you know, this is a simple option. And if you say no, you really need to have it over multiple sessions. And I think that's something that is really important. Some physicians would address the need for defibrillator once. And if the patient says no, or I'm not ready, they leave it be. I think that's not the right way of approaching this. Every visit, every chance that one has to talk about this, I think is important. And then the last point is to try and 
reevaluate and reassess this risk over time. So someone presents at the age of 20 and then you see them again, you know, over 10 years, that's not the same risk necessarily. It's not constant. So you have to keep that in mind. I, I totally agree with you. And I'll just amplify that point um, that, that th- this is not a one and done thing. The, these discussions should be ongoing, especially if the diagnosis is confirmed and we're sure to, to continue the discussion, especially if we leave the ICD on the table for now. And in the day and age of artificial intelligence, where you know we might be predicting things uh, based on electrocardiogram or echo, but we're not phenotypically seeing it yet, that, that we still need to revisit that and not just leave it in the rear view mirror. So those are really excellent points. Um, so let's say that patient progresses through, they're, they're non-obstructive, they're still having symptoms despite some of the medications that, that we've tried. Talk about the experimental uh, drugs that are out there and, and what, what options are out there that we can refer patients to in terms of trials, the myosin, cha- myosin light chain inhibitors, other new and exciting things that are on the horizon. Tell us what's out there. Yeah, I would be happy to. I think, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in um, investigation of therapeutics and uh, research not for the end point of doing research, it's for the end point of transforming hypertrophic cardiomyopathy into an evidence-based specialty, finding more options for patients. You only realize how limited we are once you take care of these patients longitudinally and take care of their families. You know, some families have had traumatizing experiences over the years. Once you get to know everyone and once you take to care of a large segment of them, really you realize how limited we are. And, you know, listening to patients uh, uh, stories would 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 propel anybody to consider these these options as they go, uh, even not knowing upfront if something you know will work or not. So um, you know the first uh, medication to talk about in the non-obstructive space is uh, uh, Embria is a company that is uh, working on uh, this medication, Nanirafaxstat, which is uh, Embria one hundred two or IMB one hundred two. It's uh, in non-obstructive HCM. It's an energy modulator. So what it's supposed to do, it's supposed to switch the metabolism towards glucose metabolism. And so what you're doing is that you're shifting from fatty acid metabolism by partial inhibition to glucose metabolism. And this will lead to recoupling of glycolysis and glucose oxidation. And it's thought to improve the efficiency of ATP. In the end of the day, while it's not fully proven, we think that HCM in general is a condition that leads to really impaired uh, energy uh, 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 utilization. And if you are able to address that in a way, you might improve the environment and symptoms uh, for patients. And TMZ or trimetazidine has been used in uh, in Europe for a long, long time for angina. And, you know, people who use it say it works very well. This is a more potent drug uh, because of its uh, different, you know, structure and chemistry, as well as it's conjoined with niacin, which is supposed to uh, promote also the action of the drug itself. And we have uh, a trial that was done previously presented at ESC last year. It's called Improved Dice, which is uh, done in type 2 diabetes and HFPF. And there is overlap between HFPF and non-obstructive HCM. And that trial showed that um, the drug does improve cardiac energetics and improves relaxation. And so we'll see. Uh, improved HCM trial is ongoing, and we look forward to the uh, results of that uh, trial. Just to mention one thing that we, you know, it's been looked at uh, trimetazidine in, obst- in non-obstructive HCM. This is a trial by uh, Caroline Coates, which was published in JAMA Cardiology in 2019. Small study showing that there was no effect of the drug on peak VO2. 
So, um, you know, whether a more potent drug would have that effect or not is the question at hand. And, you know, we participated in Improve HCM and we look forward to seeing the results hopefully soon. Um, switching gears, we have two cardiac mice inhibitors right now that have non-obstructive HCM trials ongoing. And I'm sure many know about cardiac mice inhibitors. What the goal is to reduce the hypercontractility that one sees in HCM at the pathophysiological level. So you use medications to reduce the actin-mycin interactions in a reversible fashion. And so the first drug that many people are familiar with is mavacantin. Mavacantin is commercially available for obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but here we're talking about non-obstructive. So you cannot use mavacantin commercially for non-obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. That's really important to remember uh, because sometimes people forget this. And the, the behavior of the drug seems to be different between obstructive and non-obstructive. This was the phase two trial called Maverick HCM, which showed that there was no difference on symptoms, but reduction in NT, pro BNP, and troponin. And the drug is uh, overall safe, but it did was associated with about 12-13% risk of reduction in LVEF. Um, and so that's always on our minds when we talk about uh, mevacantin. And so this led to the design of the phase three trial. This is a, a large phase three trial for, 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 the, for HCM in general. We're talking about close to four to 500 patients with non-obstructive HCM who are going to uh, be enrolled in Odyssey and be randomized to mevacantin versus placebo with the endpoint that you can see here. This is from clinicaltrials.gov showing that uh, KCCQ and PeakVO2 are the primary measures in this trial. Uh, this trial is currently enrolling as well. And then we recently presented the Redwood cohort four, HCM cohort four trial. This is Afikamtin. So it's another cardiac medicine inhibitors with uh, a different properties from Mavicamtin. It binds to different sites. And so the, you know, the, the expectation is that, you know, it, its behavior might be different. So we're looking at this in the, all these different trials. And so in cohort four, we saw that symptoms improved. We saw KCCQ improve in YHA class. We saw also the NT probin P anthroponin improve. And so overall, these results were uh, exciting to us. So that propelled the uh, design and uh, conduct of the phase three trial, which is going to be starting very soon, called Acacia uh, HCM. You know, the design itself is still not on clinicaltrials.gov, but once they publish that, you can take a look and evaluate the trial uh, and your willingness to participate. And then finally, I'll end with this. Um, uh, we have now uh, not one, actually, two gene therapy programs for MYBBC3. Uh, I'm showing the one that is close, or the trial that is actually started already, which is uh, by a company called Tenaya. This is, uh, you know, thought to be, you know, in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, the most common gene mutation is myosin binding protein C3. And so you have, it, it, think of it as your, uh, a break mechanism in, in the myocardium. And so when you don't have enough break, you know, the hypercontractility will happen and the downstream effects will happen. If we are able to replenish the MYBBC3 part of the protein, which, you know, most patients already have some of it, but they need more. So if we're able to replenish that using gene therapy, then the, th the, uh, the thought is that you are able to rescue this uh, uh, gene mutation and you're able to provide patients hopefully with uh, better uh, quality of life, you know, over time and prevent complications. Uh, the second program is not rate in, in, in clinical trials, um, you know, uh, with, with Bioman and they are in the process of uh, uh, working on this. They announced this couple of 
uh, uh, years ago, and they're working on this as well. You know, this is a quick rundown uh, of this. I think, you know, some other things to consider is that we're thinking about SGLT2 or SGLT, SGLT inhibition in general in patients with non-obstructive HCM. If it works in HFF in certain scenarios, could it work in non-obstructive HCM? That's another one that, you know, we're looking at. Uh, thank you. That, that, that's a great summary. And I, I think it, it pushes home the point that, that we know. Um, get, get these patients to centers of excellence, get them where uh, they can get involved in these trials and, and be with people who are seeing them often. Um, and, and sometimes we, we still don't know. And I know many of us are talking to one another, even with difficult cases at these centers of excellence. You know, what should we do? What do you think? Um, is it obstructive? Is it non-obstructive? Going down different routes just to try to hammer that home and, and make the right diagnosis and get the patient the, the care he or she needs. Because this field is exploding right now and there's just so many opportunities to involve our patients in, in really cutting-edge science, as, as you've so wonderfully illustrated there. So, um, uh, Ahmad, you've given us a lot of your time and really appreciate all of your thoughts and, and um, all of your comments on this. Uh, is there anything you want to leave us with uh, before we finish up here? Uh, yeah, well, thanks for having me. This has been really fun, uh, especially to reconnect after all these years. Um, but one of the things that I would say is just building on the same concept, uh, you know, is, you know, we, we need to act, correct? Instead of just sitting around and just saying, well, we have a disease with no treatment, we need to push the envelope forward and we need to find treatments for patients. So, you know, the, you know, don't be discouraged. We've had some negative clinical trials in this field. There are a lot more to come. So just keep pushing and keep uh, providing patients with options. If they're not available locally at a place, reach out. You know, most people in this field, as far as I know, are really approachable and, you know, very well connected. And so, you know, from a patient perspective and from a, a provider and a physician perspective, you know, uh, reaching out to others, trying to get patients connected, I think is really for the, for the better, better of, all of, of all the community as well as the individual patients. Yeah, this is a field that, that truly is multidisciplinary and you, and you need multiple different eyes uh, looking at each patient and figuring out what's best. So you, you very eloquently illustrated that there. And and yes, it feels like not that long ago, you and I were back in Pittsburgh with Dr. Tim Wong and, you know, just, just talking about these things is what felt like little children at the time. So it's really a pleasure to reconnect this way. And um, thank you for your time. It, it's been such a pleasure and privilege to watch your career take off and, and all the advances you're helping for our patients in this setting. So uh, with that. Thank you everyone for joining and, and certainly we look forward to seeing everyone in Cleveland in October for the annual HCMS meeting. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Dr. Eli Friedman and Dr. Iman Masri. For more information on this study, please click the slides in the show notes or visit hcmsociety.org podcast. This episode was edited and produced by EarFluence. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon on In the Thick of It.